You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is Dave Gorman who joined me for a conversation live at the Soho Theatre earlier this week. There is one show left at Soho in this run and that is going to be with the brilliant Ramesh Ranganathan, him of uh, Asian Provocateur and numerous Edinburgh shows and uh, TV appearances. His star is very much in the ascendance at the moment. Can't wait to talk to him about all of that and about how he does his particular brand of being really cutting and pissed off and looking like he can't be bothered, and how he makes that funny, because surely that is the dream for all of us, is to be able to go on stage and be in a mood and be even funnier than if we were happy. So uh, lots to talk about with Romish. That's the 4th of April. As ever, you can go to SohoTheatre.com and enter the discount code FAF to get 25% off your tickets. At this Dave Gorman one, we had about 90 people in the room. It was so great. You will hear how thrilled I am at the beginning of the show. Uh, and thanks to Dave for coming on and giving us such a thoughtful uh, response to all of the questions. He uh, he kept apologising afterwards for having spoken too much. But I would just suggest uh, to Dave and to you that this is the first of maybe many hours with which we could talk to him. I don't think I covered a fifth of what was on my notepad. So without further ado, here is Dave Gorman. We, we just did the polite handshake as if we weren't both in that room yeah. <laughs> 30 seconds ago chatting about our babies. I know, I really and wanted... And now we just said, hello, good to meet you. I wanted to shuffle papers or something. And I should say as well, um, recently uh, on the live podcast here at Soho, uh, I had Adam Buxton as a guest who opened with uh, giving me sort of gifts and stuff. And although you didn't bring them on stage, Dave did that beforehand as well. He got yeah. me some uh, He got me some nice uh, little uh, clothes for the Boutros. So yeah. I just wanted you to know that. because And not a- even hand-me-downs. No, they were new. They were so new, he'd left the price on them, which yeah. is some yeah. superior dadding. Uh, Good work. VHS. Um, I meant to, before we get properly stuck in, I meant to just check. I sort of occurred to me on the way here. Do you currently have any uh, sick anywhere on your clothes? Uh, no, because I did change before I left the house. Oh, rats. And he was with his mum at a swimming bath at the time. Okay, fair dues. We yeah. went swimming for the first time today. It was so it's great. very exciting, Back to the show. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about, let's start by talking about your show, your current touring show. And it is still current because you have one extra date left, that's right? Yes, uh, we're, we're, we're doing one at the Royal Festival Hall on March 31st, which is the last of this tour. And how many but... dates have you done on this tour? Um, it's about, it's, it's just over 90, I think. Okay. So this show, and it's, uh, it's called Dave Gorman Gets Straight to the Point, asterisk, the PowerPoint. Yes. Is, is your, you, sorry, you, you look like you're anticipating a particular line of No, inquiry. no, I, I just, like, that's the kind of title you give a thing when you've got to give it a title before you've written it. Yes, gotcha. That's, that's what happens these days, that tours are booked so far in advance. You have to have a name for a tour, and you don't know what it's going to be about. But so. you, I suppose, you do know the territory. Like some people, I always remember, like Russell Howard would call his hours things like Dingle Dodies, 
which yeah. would just be skylarking, which would be yeah. a sort of nonsense word he could then ignore when he got on with writing the show. Yeah, yeah. At least you're in the territory of there's definitely going to be some PowerPoint. I'm, I'm basically a double act with a PowerPoint. Yeah, um, okay. That's it, I am, and that, that is what I do. And so, yeah, at least I can sort of remind people of that okay. in the title. So, given I don't the... think I can do that three times. I mean, the tour before this was just called Dave Gorman's PowerPoint Presentation, which is as on the nose as it could possibly be. <laughs> this one's got that sort of oblique-ish reference to PowerPoint in the title. I don't think I can do that a third time. I think I just have to now accept that an audience is expecting that to be the, okay. the show. Well, this opens a, a, a can of furry worms. Let's talk about Ooh. the... Uh, I think I've nicked that off Armando Yanucci. It's a great <laughs> phrase. Um, the, uh, the nature of you, when you say, that's what I do, like, you are well-known, you are known, would you say, primarily for being the comedian who uses PowerPoint these days. I mean, you, you've been through lots of phases of how the, you might figure in the public eye. But when you say, that's what I do, yeah, who uh, is that? have you settled on that now as being, that's what I do? And is that, is that a decision you made or a decision that it's, the it's, economic forces have made? <laughs> um, uh, no, it's, it's sort of... Um, well, I, I've settled on it for now. Okay. You know, it's probably the fourth version of me that I've settled on as a performer. Can you, if you said fourth, can you break down the first three? Uh, yeah, I was, um, first of all, I did stand-up poetry, um, massively influenced by John Hegley and Henry Normal. Okay. I didn't know about that bit. Yeah, yeah. No, that, what that years was... of this? Was that, that was how you opened your... Yeah, I was, was 19. I was 19. Um, and... I used to, I, I, I used to love John Heck, still love John Heckley. John Heckley yeah. is, is a massive influence on, on, on me. I used to see him at Edinburgh Festival when I was a teenager and just thought he was the most mind blowing, amazing thing. Um, and I used to write sort of stand up poetry alone in my student digs bedroom. And, and comedy is, is a weird art form for that. Cause if you, if you wrote serious verse, your friends say, what do you do? A hobby. You go, oh, right, I write poetry. Oh, really? That's really interesting. Oh, yeah, I play a bit of guitar. That's really interesting. Oh, I paint. That's really, you know, all these things are things you can do by yourself. Mm-hmm. But comedy doesn't exist without an audience. So doing it by yourself in your bedroom is mental. Because <laughs> you haven't got the other half of, of, of the equation. But if you want to just play your guitar in your bedroom, that's absolutely fine. No one, no one thinks that's weird. But I was sort of writing stand-up poetry, like verse that wasn't really verse, that was really only made sense in the context of a comedy club sort of thing. And about two of my mates knew about it. Uh, and there was a, a tour run. It was sponsored by Red Stripe. It was for Amnesty International. And it was in a different university town every Sunday night. Uh, and it was like, none of these people were really famous at the time, but Joe Brand was on, Frank Skinner was on, Henry Normal was on, who's now like a big producer. Um, but none of them were household names. None of them were people my mum knew at the time. This is like 26 years ago. So. Um, and in the afternoon, because Frank was so into comedy, he just loves comedy so much, he, for, to raise extra money for Amnesty International, he would run a comedy workshop that cost two quid. And my two mates basically said, you are going to that. Okay. Because what you do in your room by yourself makes no sense. <laughs> okay. So good. Had they, had they seen you perform live? You I'd never them? performed. I'd never performed. Oh, I see. You literally, never performed I literally just I used to, just, just to have a little notebook with these silly ideas. In. And they made me go to it. And there was about 20 people in Manchester in company of Frank Skinner for an afternoon. And at the end of it, um, Henry Normal, who was also on the tour, he used to live in Manchester. He's now one half of Steve Coogan's, production company baby cow um 
but then he was a, a, a performer. He's actually just got, he's just gone back to performing poetry again. But okay. after many, many, many years out. But that was his thing. And because he was mates with Frank and, and the tour was in his hometown that day, he came along to the workshop as well. And at the end of that workshop, he came over to me and went, I can get you on uh, a benefit gig at Salford on Thursday. So that was my first gig. Okay. Doing, doing that stuff. How many people when you say a benefit gig? Is this it was a... actually, it was, no, it was a big gig. It was like 150 people or something. Okay. It was a decent, it was a workable gig. And it actually went well. And so I did it again. If it had gone badly, I probably wouldn't be here now talking. I wouldn't have done anything. Okay. It went really well. Um, so I did stand-up poetry for a while. Can I, then, so just to interrupt, can I ask yeah. you, what does any particular piece of advice stand out from a comedy workshop with Frank Skinner? Do you, do you remember what sort of, uh, I what do. sort of things you covered? Is there I, anything that like... I do. I'm always and interested in whether people had mentors or like the earliest exposure. There is, and it's a piece of advice I have given to other people uh, freely over the years. Uh, it's about constructing a set when you're putting your set list together. So I guess then, you know, it was really about the idea of doing a 20-minute set. But it's still true if you're doing an hour's show or hour and a half or whatever, is see every joke, every laugh as a streetlight. And the bigger laughs are brighter bulbs and the smaller laughs are dimmer bulbs. And try and construct your set so that you can walk from the beginning of the road to the end of the road without being in darkness. Amazing. So you put the big light laughs where you need them, and they, they cover you. And then if a little one here doesn't work, it's all right. You're still in, the, still in the glow of that laugh from before, and then you're going to pick up with another one here. And that's just a really sensible way of approaching how to construct a set. Okay. And that's, that's okay. still in there from 26 years ago. That's amazing. That's a really um, – that's a very methodical kind of a – an approach yeah rather comp- i mean that i think that typifies a certain type of comedic approach doesn't it as opposed to someone like the phil k's of this world yeah who would be, you know what I mean? <laughs> who's I mean, never written a set list in his life yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, constructed. yeah but i think there's um a lot of these things where you know i've i've friends or people who've done writing workshops and i know lots of people who started stand up at workshops and things and the advice that you're given when someone tells you, oh, no, I went to a writing workshop and they said you can approach, you know, jokes sometimes work like this. People go, yeah, some of, some of my jokes probably work like that. Mm. And you're doing, you, you do it all naturally. And actually a sensible person constructing a set does that without thinking about light bulbs. It doesn't have to be your, your thought process, but you can step back and see that you have still constructed your set with the big laughs okay. spread out. Okay. Everyone does, don't they? Sure. So the instinct hones it that way. Yeah, so you start in a place of as much light as possible. Yeah. And yeah. make sure that you finish in a place of as much light absolutely. as possible. And sometimes yeah, yeah. you have to run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Sometimes it's, and now I think it's sometimes quite nice to hide in the dark for five minutes. <laughs> and is that, by that, do you mean now that you are, you are like 26 years in, you're yeah. in a position to be in control of when you're, it's like you're, oh, I almost said, it's like you're not afraid of the dark anymore. And then I, <laughs> and then I kind of, I kind of couldn't bring myself to say it, but you, you are, you're now wielding sufficient control that you are able to, to last longer, to make those dark patches last longer, confident that there'll be light again. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of that. And there's also, and I, I can't even, I can't think of a specific example, but you know Nick Doody? Yes. Nick Doody is, is a brilliant, brilliant stand-up and a brilliant writer. And he works with me on... He, he's, he's part of the tour that I'm doing. Uh, he's, he's, one of, he's the opening act on, on that. But he's also... Uh, we write together and, and, and stuff. And he helps hone Modern Life is Goodish with me and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's been to see someone like... I do dry run shows for that all the time. 
um, and he comes to those. And there are times when I can deliberately sort of just drop something a bit iconic. I can't think of a specific example, but I can, at the start of a show, just say something which isn't funny but is a bit intriguing. And you can feel the audience going, he's going to use that later. <laughs> yeah, he's going to use that later. <laughs> and Nick's always like, you lucky fucker. You've got enough credit in the bank yes. and an audience that knows that you do that, that nobody goes, oh, that didn't work. Yeah. And audiences are going, that's going to come back, isn't it? Nicely set up, How's Dave. he doing that? Yeah. What's that going to... And, and that's, that's lovely to have that. So, yeah, that, that's sort of what I meant when I was saying sometimes it's quite nice to hide sure. in the dark for a while and just sort of stare people down and kind of like, it's all right, I know what I'm doing. It's all right, it's going to be okay. And is, I'm screwing this bulb in for later. Do you find... Are there, are there, are there ever situations... And, well, and we're going off on several tangents here, but are there ever situations when you're playing to an audience who don't know you? If you're, or or do, does everywhere you play... Now, if you go to Montreal, if you go to Australia, do you get people know you well enough that you never are in a situation where you have to test that confidence in front of an audience who don't necessarily know you that well? That's an interesting one because, no, I, I, I'm certainly not known in Canada or whatever sufficiently for that to be a, a thing. But I think because I'm not doing a 20-minute set in those places, I'm doing normally a 90-minute show in those places. If I go to Australia or Canada, I'm probably, it's probably, I'm, I'm, I'm doing an hour, restrictions of a festival. Um, and there's something about that setup, which is different to a club and doing 20 yes. minutes as well, that almost almost affords you that anyway, I think, to an extent. But it's it's impossible to explain how an audience who doesn't know that they haven't seen you before and they don't know that you play those tricks and don't know that's part of your game can get a sense of, well, he's in this festival, so he must have something. Yeah. And it's in a theatre, and they've given him a whole hour, and most of the guys are doing like 15 minutes. So there must be, okay, we'll, we'll trust it. And they sort of, there's something about the whole of the sure. context that gives it you. Whereas that, you know, if you're trying to play that trick on them in a 15-minute set in a club, would have a kind of, well, oh, this English guy's losing it. Yeah, okay. Right, to it, I think. I think. Okay, okay. But I, so I don't, I don't take that stuff out when I'm in those places. I do leave those games in there. Sure. Okay, so yeah. to get back on track, you're... Uh, yeah, so that was incarnation number one. Stand-up poetry. Uh, which was, it was great in a way because I was 19 and I had no life experience and it was all about words. And so I, you know, I wasn't giving anything of myself because there was nothing to give. Um <laughs> Pay, is, pay attention, nineteen-year-old wannabe stand-ups. Well, it's, it's weird actually because everything you have experienced up to the age of nineteen, you know, you've guaranteed almost basically your entire audience has got that experience. Yes, it doesn't change the fact. Yes, no, that's a very good that point. That it's yeah. not that much. And also, I was shy. I was slightly introverted, and so I could be a sort of deadpan guy with some words and not have to feel like I was exposing anything of myself. Um, so I, I did that for a while. And then I, um, a guy in Manchester, a promoter called Chris Coop, uh, booked me uh, for a show in Stockport, I think it was. Uh, and he said it was supporting John Hegley. I was like, I, I cannot do this supporting John Hegley. It was like, you shouldn't book me. That would be awful. It's like, it's like I'm a lesser version of John Hegley. The last thing a John Hegley audience wants is to watch somebody not quite being John Hegley for... <laughs> 
20 minutes before him. And the last thing John Hegley wants to go on stage after is someone who's using his rhythm and his yeah. thing. I was just awful. Couldn't do it. I was like, you, no, you don't, don't book me for that. Book me for something else, Chris, but don't, don't take that. And he was like, no, 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 I really think it'll work. And I said, well, I'll do it, but I won't do any poetry. And it was like three weeks later, I'd written another, I'd written a 20 minute stand up set instead of the poetry set I'd been okay. doing. And that was the start of the new, I started doing sort of one liner stuff instead so in three weeks you wrote 20 minutes worth of one-liners yeah I, i'm just i'm just trying to speak the thoughts of anyone listening to this <laughs> hang on <laughs> yeah sort yeah sort of well, it wasn't do all you, one-liners but do you remember any of them yeah um um i had a phone call i mean from, you've probably got time to write another yeah. six right nah. now <laughs> Uh, I had a phone call from my agent earlier. He said, I just want to check you've got October the 8th in your diary. I said, of course I have. It's a diary. (laughs) Um, I don't know what you think about Michael Jackson and these blackmail allegations, but I think he definitely used to be one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it wasn't all all like that. It wasn't all like that. Sure, sure. And those are both, I mean, both those examples certainly are like kind of linguistic Yes. Play. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's still in the same. I was very deadpan when I started, which was a defense mechanism because you're sort of. I'm oh, sorry, that sounded so like the setup to a joke like that. Never mind. <laughs> no, yeah. no. But it is, it's a sort of, it's a, you can't hurt me. If this doesn't go down very well, it doesn't mm. matter because I don't even care sort of posturing, uh, which is, you know, what happened when you're 19, I guess. Um, and you're like me in 19 and just timid and don't want to and then the biggest thing over time was learning that actually the more you care the more the audience cares and the more they care the better it goes mm. and and being vulnerable is brilliant on stage it's the best thing in the world when you if you're prepared to be vulnerable in front of people they don't dare not listen but if you're being all i don't care you're giving them permission to not care and it all sort of you know that's when it can go wrong but it, the minute I started loosening up and being myself and, and giving some, you know, being vulnerable in some way, shape or form, everything sort of goes up a gear. Yes. And was that phase three then after the after the dead pan? I, I realised there might have been there might be more than one phase. Um, I might have missed out one. Uh, so I did that sort of stand up for a while, which sort of morphed a little bit. I started doing instead of one liners, like I started doing a couple of really big five minute, ten minute routines stories and things but it was still you know that was just me as a as a one man one man and a mic stand-up sort of phase and then i sort of found i found edinburgh of like a frustrating place the festival for a, for a while i did a couple of sort of solo stand-up shows there and i found it really weird basically if you're a comic and you're doing your first album you're, you're losing money right? i assume people kind of know this these sure. days but i don't know um so you know the first time i did edinburgh i was doing a 50 seat room and if i sold 100 percent of the tickets i was going to lose four grand <laughs> and, and so it's it's like a lottery ticket you're buying it's you know you're sold the idea of doing it because it's going to help your career and get you this opportunity and that opportunity and somebody will see you and and so on and I found it really weird that the industry moved to Edinburgh for a month and people did what they do night in, night out for a living at a loss so that some people who live in Crouch End can see them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, that's the most mental thing in the world. And I, I, I sort of decided I'm, I'm not going to do Edinburgh again unless I do it in a way that is taking a risk 
Because if you're going to lose four grand, you should do it. That should be a risk. You should do something different. You should, they shouldn't be, the people from Crouch End who are coming to see you shouldn't be seeing the same thing they saw only longer <laughs> when they saw you at Dad's yeah. Head of the King's Head or whatever. So I, I just sort of tore up what I did for a, in the clubs. And I was like, I'm just going to do something different. I'm going to do a show that's written for that space, not, well, I'll take the 20 minutes I was do, you know, I've built up over this year and add on the 20 minutes that I sort of wasn't quite sure of the year before. And I'll pack it instead of doing that thing. And there's all these comics in dressing rooms going, I've got 47 minutes. <laughs> how, how much have you got? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to try another three minutes tonight and it'll be 50. And then if I, you know, I'll, be, I'll build, you know, building it in little incremental bits just is, it's a shit way of building a show, I think. So I, I sort of decided to throw it all away and do something different. I had a lunch with my manager when I, I told him what the idea was. I used to live in Manchester. I came down to London to see him. We had a nice lunch at a pizza restaurant not that far from here. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm going to do a show called Reasons to be Cheerful. And he said, what's it about? I said, it's about the Ian Jory song, Reasons to be Cheerful. And he was like, when, when was that? In the charts? <laughs> 1979. All right. How are you going to do a show about a song? <laughs> and is there a more current song you could do? And what the, basically, what the hell are you thinking about? Okay. Um, and I was like, the, the, the phrase I used with him at that lunch was, there's no point going to Edinburgh with a show unless it might be shit, but isn't. Okay. That, that's part, you, you've got to be taking a risk. You've got to, you know. So what I'd done in my head was I, I, I think the, I, the lyrics to Ian Jory's Reasons to be Cheerful, there were something like 55 reasons to be cheerful. So I thought in my head, if I can write a minute stand-up about each of those and say hello and goodbye and deal with the twat whose phone goes off yeah. partway through, that's like an hour. That's, that's a festival show. So that's what I set out to write. And because everyone, at the agency who I work with and whatever, was like, we don't know what you're doing. And we don't really want you to commit to putting this in the Edinburgh program in case you really regret doing this. They were really pushing me to do previews incredibly early. So I did my first preview in March. And I hadn't really written all of it yet. I did it at Battersea Art Centre. And I went on thinking, oh, I hope I've got an hour in here. And, and there are some lyrics I, you can't hear properly. It's hard to know what they actually are word for word. And... Trying to find the lyrics online, and online didn't really exist then. And <laughs> uh, wait, they didn't. Like, you couldn't Google the lyrics yeah, no, for that song then. Sure. At the time, I was doing the show, um, and so I, I did this first preview, and they had to take me off stage after two hours. I was, <laughs> I was just still going, and I had no idea. I was like that. So genuinely, it was like a hostage situation, and I. <laughs> And the bits that I hadn't written yet were the best bits of the show. When I was telling them the story of the lengths I was going to to find the lyrics, and the reason I haven't written verse two yet is because of this, right? But I went down to okay. the British Library, and when I did all that bit, okay. it went much, much better. Is, do you think it, that's... What it was, that was proof of concept. I came away from that show thinking, that show tonight was shit, but the audience were massively engaged in the idea. It's definitely going to work because there were uh, like a hundred people there who were all like, "What next? What next?" And they did it all night. They didn't, and uh, two hours, and they were nobody was looking at their watch. Nobody was trying to get out. It was just, it was just the theatre going. We have to, we have to stop. Sure. That ended it, and it was it was proof of concept. It was a show with masses of holes, but that's when I started doing basically sort of 
I didn't do the show where I wrote a minute of stand-up about each thing. What I did was a documentary about me trying to make a show about yes, that thing. Because, because presumably in that environment, when you're, when you're winging it, because you're attempting one task, which and, and the, t- the task you're attempting isn't perform 60 minutes worth of comedy. Yes, the yeah, task yeah. that you're attempting is explain why you haven't got what you what you're planning to do yeah so that if there's something about that moves the goalpost it's almost like it's much you can be much more creative and flow much more when you are i didn't you see what i'm getting at yeah there's a series of shows i did then that were basically i've painted myself into a corner now watch me paint my fucking way out gotcha and they were sort of documentaries because i had evidence of everything i was doing yes and that was it wasn't i didn't i didn't there's somebody used the phrase documentary comedy in one of the reviews early on and that kind of that got attached to me for a while yes um and can i just ask what was what was the landscape in which you came up with that show were people doing thematic conceptual shows when you said i'm going to do this thing and your agency said well we're not sure that's presumably no i didn't i don't think there were many i don't think there was this sort of thing i think ben miller had done a show about blue peter and Ken Campbell, who I adored, mm. had done amazing shows, a, a real high concept. But he wasn't a stand-up. It wasn't seen as okay. stand-up uh, and stuff. So it did feel like very new territory. So this is Dave. You can see what I mean. He really enjoys thinking about stuff, talking about stuff, explaining where he's at. And uh, we, I think we really cover some fascinating ground. He's a very, very funny man. And this isn't one of the funnier live shows. We, we talked about the show before uh, we went on. And uh, I, I think that I really, I really remembered for once to point out to my guest before we start that it's not just about getting laughs in the room. There have been episodes of this show, live episodes, where people have gone hard for the gags. They've been really funny, but they haven't always been the most interesting, concise, insightful uh, shows. Whereas this, I think, is, is leaning much more towards the insight than uh, the, the entertainment. And Dave's been around forever. If you if you want to hear Dave being hilarious, then, uh, then you can find it in probably more places than almost any other guest. Just Google his name and you will see the phenomenal, prodigious volume of uh, material he has online. Um, so... All of this is a roundabout way of me saying thank you to Dave for really taking the time to actually answer the questions and get properly stuck in. More from him in a moment. Um, I mentioned before Ramesh Ranganathan on the 4th of April. Jump on online and grab your tickets for that next time you are near an internet. I wanted to thank a couple of people that came to the show. Uh, Claire from Toast in East Dulwich. Lovely to see you there. Very nice to meet you. Thank you to Stephen Case. And hello to Ollie and everyone else listening in Japan. Apparently, hey man, I'm big in Japan. Um, there's, uh, there is a, a burgeoning English-speaking comedy circuit out there. And uh, those guys are big fans of the show. So hello to everyone in Japan. Thanks for sending Stephen along uh, with hundreds of numerous tiny, unique chocolates. Uh, tasting of things like potato cake and mango. And I was very impressed with Stephen's ability to tell me uh, what flavour they were from the Japanese writing, uh, the character's on the packets, I can only assume, I mean, I assumed at the time that he speaks fluent and reads fluent Japanese, but perhaps he just knew what the colours meant. Um, but I hope I will see you out there very soon. That's, uh, that's some really interesting, exciting news. So thanks, guys. And um, thanks also to um, a gentleman called Chris, who who I met afterwards, uh, after the show, who not only donated something to leave the lights on, but also donated some light bulbs, which is very Germanic of him. So thank you, Chris. Chris pointed out that he is an he is a 160 episode veteran of the show. He's listened to every single one, and there should surely be a name for this. I mean, you you know, go mental, join in and um, 
uh, and tell me what you think they should be called. They, you, I mean, there's some of you. I do get a lot of emails and tweets that say, uh, you know, I, I, pick, I pick and choose initially. I, I picked and chose, that's an odd sentence. Um, I, uh, I got into it uh, in bits and bobs and then went back and listened to all of them, which is fantastic. Um, so let's think of a name for those people. And thank you to everyone that came along to the first one of the tour show. Oh, my God, it was so much fun. Uh, we were at the Birmingham Glee last Friday. Uh, I'm at Deskino in Nottingham this Friday, if uh, if this show goes out in time, if, if for you to get your tickets to that. And um, there are a bunch of other shows coming up soon, which I will, of course, tell you again at the end of the show, just before the waffle. But thank you to everyone that, that came along. Um, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. That one chatting woman throughout. Even that was enjoyable. People getting up to go for a wee. So I'm like, OK, let's wait for them and let's do some material from the new show while we wait. That was fun, too. Uh, sorry you didn't get to hear the end of that bit. But the, as you remember, the wee was concluded. And thank you to the 20 or so people that stuck around after for the uh, after the show for the little secret off the record Q&A. I am thrilled that I'm cultivating such uh, an uh, it, such an intelligent attentive audience who asked me some genuinely fascinating questions about this podcast as some of uh, the answers of which I wouldn't feel comfortable committing to the airwaves so thank you so much for coming to that and um uh, and uh, also someone bought a t-shirt which is very nice because there really aren't many t-shirts left <laughs> um let's get on with the, this Dave Gorman podcast um, one final thing uh, before we go back in, which is to say thank you for your donations. Uh, I know I mentioned on a previous episode. Here's the thing. I said um, uh, I said on the Facebook group recently, why is everyone joining the Facebook group? <laughs> What's going on? And it only took about three comments down before everyone was commenting. Well, it's because you told us to, Stu. Yes, because I've got a secret guest coming up on the show. And uh, I, that's the way to find out and the way to submit your questions to a secret guest is join the Facebook group. I couldn't believe it. I thought, was Dave Gorman tweeted about it to his million followers? Um, no, it was, it was actually me. I said on this show, join the Facebook group, and you did in your droves. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, sadly, the last 40 or 50 of you to join joined after I removed information about the special guest, forgetting that I'd mentioned it. So uh, I will put that up again and we'll have another round of, uh, of those. And also some more interactive things as well. It's just the Facebook group's an incredibly easy way for me to float ideas, get feedback on things. There's a sort of telly-related thing I mentioned on there recently. And it was just great to be able to go, hey, 3,000 switched on people. Quickly, what do you think of this in an hour? And get 20 or 30 responses and go, great, guys, thanks, and then remove it again. So um, I, I think if you're a, a diehard fan of the show, you'll be interested in checking that out. You can, of course, still email me, info at comedianscomedian.com. Uh, you can say horse to me at comcompod. Uh, oh, oh, no, you can't. That doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about that. Ignore that. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's not for you. That's for the special people. Uh, and, of course, finally, you can donate. If you're enjoying the show, uh, if you feel that it is making a difference to your life or your work, you can... Come on, Stu, say this in a different way. What is there to say in a different way? The show takes time. It takes money. It takes... Uh, I like to pay Nathan when I can for his editing work. Um, I've got to travel around the place. Sometimes I miss writing work and gigging work because I'm working on the show, planning stuff. All of that requires money. And um, thank you to those of you who've donated. It's a pretty small percentage of the total listenership. That's absolutely fine. But if you want to be part of the special ones, the little, I won't even say the number, but the, the small fraction of people uh, that listen, 
whatever the word is for not a freeloader, a payloader. <laughs> that sounds rude. Um, but if you want to be uh, even closer to, to my heart than the the rest of you who are also, of course, very close to my heart, uh, then you can make a donation at comedianscomedian.com. You can click on the numerous links there. If you want to make a recurring payment, that's fantastic because that just makes me go, oh, look, it's a thing. It's a recurring thing that works. Um, but equally, I would not say no to a, a one-off donation of a pound a show, ten pence a show, or whatever you'd spend on a bottle of wine, or on buying a buddy for uh, for their first baby. So that's all of that. Let's get back to the absolutely fantastic Dave Gorman. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Was there any sense within which you were trying to stand out at Edinburgh doing that? Was it purely, the way you described it there is like, why do this? It's quite. It's a very noble way of thinking. Well, why just do the same stuff? Well, I, I think, was there an aspect by which you were sort of going? I, I mean, there's, it's still very competitive, even all that time ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you God, need yeah. to stand out and deliver something different to the next ten guys doing what you're doing. I think that's definitely a thing in Edinburgh, where lots of really, really rock solid, raise the roof comics go and have not a great festival. And I think part of the reason is. They are the circuit exists in uh, you know open spots. You're doing five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes is the unit in which comedy exists on the circuit, and then an extended set is forty minutes, and then a touring show is over an hour. But basically, a lot of comics when they're doing their first Edinburgh shows, what they're used to doing is twenty, and occasionally they get to do forty somewhere. And so what they do is they do that three times. Mm -hmm. And that's the wrong rhythm for an hour's show. And an audience in Edinburgh might be seeing their third show of of the night. And that's a fuck of a lot of, and where are you from? And what do you do mm -hmm. to sit through? Sure. 
and they've paid a, a good price and they've come to, to a, sit in a theatre, ostensibly. Um, I did one of the first things I did in Edinburgh, I, I compared the, um, the Comedy Zone, which is like a, a new act showcase. And I, I was, there was four acts on the show. And, it, you know, they're not booked as, and you will be compare. Um, and a friend of mine who had, who wasn't a comic, but he used to, um, he, he used to work in IT at a comedy agency. <laughs> That's how industry he was. Um, and, uh, and he said to me, you should host that. And I didn't think that was, a, it sounded like that was the wrong idea. That you want to be on last, you want to be the headline guy or whatever, would be the, the sort of, the nicest spot. And he said, no, I, I've, I've been to that show. It's always you know, different four people every year do this thing. I said, I've been to it last two or three years. And, and if you host it, you can own it. You can, you can really do, you know, it, that, that's, that's the place to be. And so I, I, they booked me for that. And, and I said to the agents running it and to the other acts, does anyone want to host this? Cause I'd quite like to. And so I, I did that, and I used to walk on stage, and the first words out of my mouth weren't a hello, it was a joke. Okay. Because I just thought, this audience have sat down. It isn't, it isn't a Friday night after work. They're not still talking to their wife about the babysitter. They've sat down, and they're going, right, we've paid 15 quid, gone. And you didn't need to do comparing. You didn't need to do those things that compares always do. You could just do your set. And get on with it and, and hit the ground running. Okay. And, and the sooner you got them with a joke, the better it was. They didn't need any relaxing. They were fine. And, and you know what? If you did a, two or three jokes and you could feel there was a people who weren't settled, then you could go into doing that stuff. But don't assume they need that because Edinburgh audiences don't. They're not like other audiences. And it was sort of those experiences of just going, this people are doing this wrong. 20 minutes of stand-up is not the seed you plant that grows into an Edinburgh show. Okay. You, you should saying- write something that is an Edinburgh show. You should write something that you've been given an hour's slot. You're in a theatre. Do something that belongs to be in a theatre for an hour. So when you say that 20, 320s is the wrong rhythm, is yeah. there a right rhythm? Is there something in the back of your mind is like the basic template of the rhythm of an hour? Well, what I do <laughs> is... I watched a documentary once about um, those awful, awful uh, sort of preachers in the South in America, kind of Methodist rallies. Mm -hmm. And it described, they had like some analyst talking about how clever the techniques they use are. And I thought, I use all of those. (laughs) (laughs) But for good. (laughs) Because I do, I do. Again, it's not... I, I don't think those preachers have studied the techniques and applied them. I think I think a lot of performing is natural and also honed by making mistakes and changing it yes. and making a mistake and changing it and having all the edges rubbed off you by doing it over and over again. Um, so what sort of it's techniques sort of, do you It's mean? about a growing momentum. It's about repetition. So I, th- there is this thing of... Um, so I did Reasons to Be Cheerful and a show called Better World and then a show called Are You Dave Gorman? And that was a sort of three years on the on the bounce in Edinburgh. And, and it, be, you know, that had, had a lot of momentum at that point and a lot of, and, and for a few years after that, I would see reviews of shows um, describing them. And I, I, I wince at this. Please don't think I find this an enjoyable fact, but I have seen the word Gorman-esque mm-hmm. written in two different broadsheet newspapers about other people's shows. Oh, it'd be weird to use it about mine. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what happened was those shows 
begat or coincidence, you know, whatever. I'm not, I, I don't want to put a flag in the ground. I'm not claiming I invented this thing. Other people were using the word Gormanesque about shows that were basically someone saying, I'm going to try and visit every post office in the land. And, you know, that kind of thing. And when you read a, I have to write a 80 word description of a show or whatever. So are you Dave Gorman would have a description of it somewhere and capsule reviewers would write their little blurbs and it would go, Oh, it's a show about a man trying to meet other people called Dave Gorman, which it was. But if I had walked on stage at the start of that show, I said, hello, my name's Dave Gorman and I want to meet everyone else called Dave Gorman. And audience would have gone, fuck off. That's not, why, why do we care about that? The reason that show worked is because as an audience, I, I, the start of it was, this is how this story began. I, the yes. show wasn't born out of, I've got an idea for a show. I'm going to try and meet every day I've gone and tell an audience about it. The show was made about some things that had happened to me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, here's an idea for a show, I'm making a show. It was, a, fuck, the last few months have been weird, haven't they? I could do a show about that. Right? And that's different. That's, yeah, that's a really big different thing. And so you've got to spend the first few minutes of that kind of show tickling the trout. You've got to make the audience... That's a comedy expression that everyone uses, guys. But you've got to make the audience care about why it's happening. You can't just tell them it's happening. They have no reason to to engage with the fact that it's happening unless you explain how and why it happened. And you walk people through it, and every single step makes sense. And 38 minutes in, there is a point where people are laughing because they know that what you've just said makes sense, because everything has made sense, but now we're all engaged in something completely fucking ridiculous. Yes. And none of us can quite work out what point it became ridiculous because everything made fucking sense. Presumably you are sufficiently powerful as a writer and creator and structurer of these sorts of shows, as an architect of these shows, that if you had had a good idea for a show you could make it look like it was uh, a thing that happened naturally. You, your powers as an author would <laughs> enable you to go, I've had an idea about visiting every post box in the country, uh, but I, I won't open with that. I'll do 10 <laughs> minutes first about why my dad was a postman and he always wanted me to... <laughs> do you know what I mean? That, it, that would be possible. It, it's, it would be possible. Um, I, the only time I've, I've done something like that, and it's my least favourite piece of work because of it, is um, this is going to sound so up myself and I apologise. This is the place for that. Yeah. So after Are You Dave Gorman, I was offered a sort of TV... No, no, sorry, after Reasons to Be Cheerful, I was offered a sort of TV thing of it. Um, And I turned it down, which sounds most like the most arrogant thing in the world, but I turned it down because I sat down with some people and went through it. And the money they were offering, not the money they were offering to pay me, the money they were putting up to make it meant we couldn't make what I had in my head. And I didn't want to make a lame-ass version of it. I was like, we do this properly or not at all. And it's fine because it's going well. And I don't feel like... like Bad TV hurts you so much more than anything else. Mm. Like, if you... If you you as, an, you as an artist, you as a... Yeah, yeah. As I, a, I never yeah, want to yeah. say brand, but the idea of you in the minds of the public, if you do something bad... People will go and see someone they've heard good things about live, but they won't go and see someone live that they've seen and not liked on TV. Yeah, okay. But they'll go and see someone they haven't seen 
and thought, oh, I read something quite interesting. Oh, yeah, that's all right. I'll give, I'll give that a go. You asked them to pay £15 for one they saw on TV on Tuesday and thought was shit. No chance. Like you, so, so bad TV hurts you. Um, and so I was, I was very, very, very careful about when I said yes to that. And I did Better World and, and got offered a, a TV thing for it. And, and it was the same sort of thing. It was like, you can't. You can't. I mean, it, it, with Better World, there were other reasons. I was like, no, the, the bridge has been burnt because so much had been written about this show and the show would only make sense if the stuff was created in secret. Okay. And, and now it couldn't be. So, so it, it just doesn't stand up as a concept. And I've always had this thing with TV where I go, no, this is what I'd like to do next. And they go, how's that going to work? And I go, I don't know. That's the point. And they go, but we need to know it's going to work. We can't spend this money. And I go, but I take risks. Yes. And that comes so, back to that very first kind take, of take one with me. Of, yeah. uh, of you, actually what you need to do in a TV production sense yeah. is to walk onto an audience and go, this is a thing I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And find out what the journey is yeah. by telling them about it. And then with Are You Dave Gorman, I was offered a TV thing and I said yes because it had already cost me so much fucking money. <laughs> 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 so I had to. Um, and this is the one that you were saying before, this this is the one that it's your least favourite show because... No, no, no. It's, no. it's the one after that. Okay. So, so I did that and, and you know, it was, it was flawed in lots of ways, but it was also really different and it was a really odd thing to be on TV and there was no promotion for it. Uh, they didn't make a single trail. They put it out on Sunday nights. Um, it sort of found an audience. They, the reason we know it found an audience, because they, were, they, they weren't thrilled with it. They put it on. Literally no publicity for it. And then uh, the last show, it was a narrative. It was a, a story that unfolded over, over six weeks. And the last show got moved because of the golf. And instead of saying, you know, if you tuned in to watch the last show because you'd been following a story for five weeks and wanted to know how it ended, you didn't get a message that said, we're sorry this show has been moved. It will be on on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. It said, we're sorry this show isn't on. It was shown on Thursday. So, so they literally moved it to a place where you couldn't see it if you wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> and they had so many complaints that they discovered that they had had an audience. Oh, my God. That, I've, to I've, me, sounds like a it, Dave Gorman format. It was, so, I... <laughs> it was so lovely having my show shafted by the golf. Yeah. Because without that, they wouldn't have known that people were watching it. Yeah. And caring. And okay. they, they genuinely had like loads and loads of complaints. And, and I got sent this post bag of stuff that was being sent to points of view. <laughs> and, and they. Here's your angry fan mail. They, yeah. they rescheduled the final show and put a trail on because okay. they were so kind of shocked by how much contact they had from people about it. It was brilliant because I, I called, I got this letter from out the post bag and it, it was from this. Lovely woman saying, this is a show I've watched with my two children and we've really enjoyed it and the BBC moved the fun show and we don't know how it ended. And is there any way you could tell us how it ended? And her phone number was on letter, so I called her. <laughs> and I, I said, thank you very much for letters like yours. You're the reason they're showing the show again in two weeks' time right. on a Saturday or whatever. And it means a lot to me. Thank you very much. And put the phone down. Mm. It's like, what a lovely... Amazing. It's so exciting. But anyway, so after that, uh, Jane Root, who was commissioner of BBC at the time, uh, said, I want you to do another show. We're really, really excited by the way this has gone. The only thing is, we want this one to be bigger. We want it to be shiny floor. BBC, you know, we want it to look a bit nicer and stuff. Because the, I, Dave Gorman, 
and it was deliberate. It, it looked like we'd broken into the BBC and made it ourselves. Sure, that was deliberate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was that was that's how I wanted it to look like. Because um, that cast you as a sort of an underdog, or or why? Because because they wanted to. There was pressure from people to do things like you'd have producers, and and, and none of these people are bad people. I don't want to. Everyone, everyone is always trying to achieve the best result. No one's being awful. No one's trying to undermine you. It's just a really complicated process. And you understand your own process better than other people. And so sometimes they say things which don't gel. And, there's, and, there, and so I don't want anyone to hear this and go, God, people in telly are wankers, aren't they? They're really not. They're really working hard. And a producer who I liked a lot and whatever, but at one point was sort of going, maybe we should get a name expert on to explain what your name means. And mm. things. I, I don't give a shit about that. It's not part of the story. It, it's padding, and the minute you put that padding in, you're saying to the audience, there isn't really enough story to go around. Sorry. And and what I'm saying to people is, I know this sounds like there's not much story, but look at how far I'm going to keep stretching it. It's just, I'm never going to stop. This is it. This is it. It's just this. Literally, it's just this. Nothing else is happening. It's just this. Keep watching. Honestly, I'm going to keep doing this. <laughs> and the minute I stop and go, but what does my name really mean? Broken. Gone. Yes. Like, it evaporates. Yes. The whole thing just falls apart and it's it's telly fluff i you know, we get it occasionally on on modern life is good where someone from telly land sort of says oh, would, i have a rule really with break it occasionally but basically like vts shouldn't be longer than seven or eight seconds really you've got to have a really really good reason to show something much longer because the minutes a video on the screen lasts a certain length, the audience are no longer in the room with you. They're now watching telly. And and you never want to forget that I'm the man telling you the story and I'm doing this and this is little bits of evidence. And I'm going to show you, I might show you a 30 second video, but I'll show you in six bits of five seconds and go, oh, now that's okay. interesting because of this, isn't it? Now watch this bit. Oh, is that just but, your instinct going, that must be the rule? Where does that rule come from? Uh, no, it's, it's, that's, that's the instinct. It's, it's from trying it and failing. Yes, it's, from, okay. it's from showing something longer and feeling that audience relax and go like that and no longer be aware that I'm the person telling them the story. Sure, okay. Um, but, you know, people on, on in TV land on, on that show will sort of wonder why there isn't a bit at the start of the VT where I say, I'm here in Hertfordshire, hiding behind a bush, and what's going to happen next? And the reason that's not there is because I'll say it in the fucking studio. To humans. To humans. Yeah. <laughs> like, because yeah, yeah. we don't need it. It's not, we're not making that kind of magazine television programme. Because that it doesn't help any. It's padding and it's nonsense. And if you could, if you could not have it, you should always not have it. I mean, that's true of any bit of writing, really. Yeah. Anything you can cut that yeah. leaves the sense intact is is should be gone. Tell us about this decision about the having to take that show that you were less than. Uh, so, yeah. So no, I, I, at the time I was quite happy. I didn't. I didn't realise there was any missteps in this. Um, but the show was the important astrology experiment okay. where I was testing my horoscope. I have a twin brother. Um, so my twin brother ignored his, which is the same as mine. And I obeyed my horoscopes, um, for 40 days and 40 nights. Not that I've got a Jesus complex. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we measured them to see how they go. And it's, it's a contrivance. Yes. There's no reason for doing it. We were doing it to make a telly show. 
And because of that, I don't like it. I did wonder that out of all the bits and bobs of the different shows of yours, some of which I saw at the time and some of which I saw as research for this, that is the one where I thought, I made a note saying, Dave, do you really care about astrology? No, and and I, I don't like it for the same reason. At the same time, on paper, if you read what the shows were, that... Now it's different because context is everything. You've got to also remember that shows like this didn't exist. Yes. So because Are You Dave Gorman was successful, it now sounds like a good idea. But before it was successful, it sounded like a shit idea. Yes. So there is a certain excitement to go, no, it isn't shit. Yes. And the important astrology experiment sounds like a good idea. Yes. But it was shit. And... That's um, and it was nonetheless a very good program with lots of good jokes. No, in it. no, not really. Um, <laughs> it had its moments. It's all right. It's it's but it's 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 flawed in a really big way. Okay. Um, I, after that, uh, Jane Root, the controller of BBC Two at the time, bless her, uh, called me in for a meeting and said, I've, "I'm afraid, Dave, I've got bad news. It was my decision to push you in the direction of a shiny floor show." And to to make it look that kind of way, and that was that was definitely my steer, and I apologise for that because it didn't work, and so we're not going to have another series. I thought, I'm sure halfway through that you're meant to say, so we'd like to do something else with you, <laughs> yeah. but not have my steer ruin it. <laughs> it seemed like a really grand position to be in. I know it's my fault, but you're the one who's going to cop it. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and I mean, did you, when you had that meeting, did you feel like flipping the table and going, I knew it because, or did you feel like, well, I took, that you yourself took responsibility for saying, yes, okay, we'll do it in I, a way no, that's contrary I, to my I, instinct. I have no, um, I have, I have no expectation that I have a right to be on TV. I, um, I've been doing comedy for 26 years. I've had three TV series. You know, like, I'm not someone who's on all the time. I don't do a lot of panel shows. I don't think that it's all about TV. Mm. So I, I have no expectation of that. I always think it's really weird when people say uh, a show has been dropped when what it means is it's been not recommissioned. Yes, dropped because suggests the expectation. suggests that you it? have a right to be commissioned again, mm. which is just bollocks. If, you, if you're commissioned to make six episodes of a thing, you make six episodes of a thing, you did a job, you got paid for it, move on and do the next job. The person who gave you that job has no obligation to give you another one. It's, it's nonsense. But that that was this thing at that okay. time. What I did do at that time uh, was um, got into a bit of trouble for it. Is I um, I bought the domain janeroot.com. <laughs> Uh, and I I put up a personal website for Jane Root saying, hello, I'm the controller of BBC2 and my favourite show is Dave Corman's important (laughs) astrology experiment. We must... (laughs) That's lovely. I'd forgotten about that. uh, I'd love to know what you define as getting into a bit of trouble, but there's a lot more that Uh, I want to talk about, so I'm going to move on. Um, I want to know about... Before we move ahead to the next phase, I want to know about the difference between writing stand-up, a stand-up show or a 20 for you, and writing a a documentary show or a format show, however you think of them, something more rigorously structured. Because I remember doing a gig with you in a gig that uh, Tin and Dewey used to run. I think it was the Salmon and Compass in yeah, Islington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It was upstairs. There was there may not even have been a mic. It was a very small sort yeah, of yeah. affair. And I remember you telling, I remember very vividly you telling a story about a lift. Yes. It was like a really strong bit of stand-up. And I remember yeah. only knowing you at that time from the format TV shows yeah. and, you know, Google back and what have you. And, uh, and actually being really uh, stunned by how muscular and how lean you were as a stand-up. The stand-up I, he means, <laughs> I mean, I put on a bit of weight since then. But. <laughs> Um, but I, I really, I really found that piece of stand up. It really blew me away. I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know that you were that, that you had those gears in stand up. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the difference between leanness yeah. of writing when you don't have a screen and you don't have cutaways and you don't have yeah. a structure and a story. I mean, there was a story as a, as a piece of stand up, but it wasn't but, like, yeah, yeah. here's the adventure on which I set out. Um, that was when, so I, uh, just to put things in order, I'm trying to, so I did, um, after astrology experiment, the next thing I did was Google Adventure, which, and there was a bit of a break in between. And, and basically that's a show about me having a breakdown. Um, and I'm perfectly comfortable, it is, and I'm perfectly comfortable about that. And I, at no point is it a misery show. At no point does it request sympathy. It was played, uh, sort of balls out for laughs, but at the heart of it was having a bit of a breakdown. Um, which is why life got so out of control and, and was so weird. And I, I was sort of, uh, I was meant to be writing a novel and I spent all of the money they'd given me not writing a novel, um, traveling the world and hiding from people. Um, yeah. And you deal with that lightly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely, yeah. It's, you know, you have to read between the lines. I don't think there's any, I don't want to do one of those sort of, uh, and anyway, people, now we've learned a lesson, haven't we? Kind of shows. I'm not interested in sure. that. But that's what that was. And, that was weird and it blew up in a really big way. And uh, just, I toured it for about three years. I toured it in America for four months on, you know, on the bounce. Um, it's one of the most did, successful breakdowns, I think. Any yeah. Artist. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, so I, you know, I, I did three months in New York. I did four months traveling America. I did months in Australia. I did like three tours of the UK. I just sort of, I didn't go home for eight months a year for three years. And it wore me down. I was, I mean, I, I was loving it. I'm, I, I, it was a really, really, really exciting time. But I came home. The last show I did was in Seattle. Uh, I came home on Christmas Eve, having been away from home for four months, being two stone lighter than I was, and certainly one stone lighter than I should be. Uh, and just knackered, just dead, just didn't know what I wanted to do. And lots of people were going, oh, what's the next show? And I actually had a tweet from someone a couple of days ago, when are you doing another Google Whack? And you go, Google Whack was a show about a breakdown. I didn't plan it. How could I tell you when I'm doing another one <laughs> without it being that contrived, without it being an astrology experiment version of that kind of show? which would be to shit on your own doorstep. Because if people watch a show that's a bit like that, but obviously a contrivance, mm. then they have every right to go away thinking, are we contrives them? Yeah. I bet Google Whack was contrived as well, really. Oh, it's a bit shit now. Mm. And I just, I'm, I'm too proud of it. I'm not going to shit on it. I'm not going to let people, I'm not going to give people an excuse to think that I made up that show 
or did that stuff in order to make that show. I never. I don't. Did that, you? That's were not you an getting option. tweets along those lines? Were you well, not, getting well, not Twitter back then? No, but, sure. But I, had, I genuinely had a tweet this week saying that. But I was getting a lot of emails about that, and also you know industry pressure, and my manager going, "When are you going to earn a living again? Like you need to do something." Um, and I just didn't want to do anything live anymore. I did, I did three years of really nonstop touring and never being at home and not, not having, you know, just all that stuff meant one, I had nothing to write about. <laughs> and two, I just didn't have any hunger for it. And I didn't want to do a lesser version of, at the end, like towards the end when I was doing, when I was doing Reasonably Cheerful, Better World and Are You Dave Gorman in Edinburgh, I wasn't able to live off them. They'd do okay in Edinburgh, and I'd do a little tour of art centres. By the end of it, I was sort of able to pay do your, okay. Pay your publicist. I was, uh, by, no, by the end of that, like a tour, sensibly, in sort of 300, 400 seat venues, which is enough to make a, you know, a, a living, and I'd do okay business. But at the beginning of that, I was doing Reasonably Cheerful, Better World. I'd have a really big Edinburgh, and then I'd need to go and do stand-up in between and I'd be on stage doing 20 minute sets in clubs and things thinking this isn't as good as my Edinburgh show I I know I'm a more powerful performer in that format than I am in this I know I'm better uh and I was but you know that's what I did I remember doing a gig in Islington and this it's when I was doing I did a little West End run of Are You Dave Gorman which I was very proud of because it was like before I'd done telly and, and we were able to sell a decent number of tickets in the West End without any telly behind it. I was like, oh, this is going good. But I did a gig two days after in Islington somewhere and this couple came up to me and we're like, oh, we're so glad we've seen you now. Oh, we couldn't get tickets to see you in the West End, but we've seen you now. And it was, I was being, oh, thanks, that's so nice. That was really nice of you. And I was burning inside thinking, you've seen me do 20 minutes of jokes I wrote five years ago. I so wish you'd seen me do an hour and a half of the thing that I'm really proud of because I'm really proud of it and I'm not proud of this. This is what I do to pay my rent. And I I just decided well, I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing stand-up. I'm only doing this. The only way of of forcing myself to make a living at this is to make a decision to not do the other thing because it's okay. like a sort of drug that you know, drags you into it. And if, if people know you're available for that, they'll book you for that. So I sort of, I'm going to go cold turkey and I'm not doing stand-up. So fast forward to post-Googlewack, I'm not going to go and do stand-up. I haven't got another show. I don't want to do the old shows. I can't do anything that I feel. If I try to do something, I'm, I'm obviously contriving it. And if I'm contriving it, then I'm shitting on Googlewack. And I was like, I'm just not doing anything. Just and, not doing anything. And, and at this point, presumably, if the, the, the genesis of the Googlewack show was a breakdown, yeah. did the, and then performing the Google Wax show for three years is incredibly punishing. But cathartic uh, as well. Uh, well, I was going to ask, <laughs> yeah, yeah, did, very, it, did, yeah. did performing that show, which, whether beknownst to the audience or not, was about a breakdown, did it heal some of the effects of that breakdown? It, oh, it, massively, it did. And, um, it, it, I mean, it led to, it's, it's so, it was so good for me in so many ways. Um, and massively cathartic, but it probably went on a year too long. That was, that was the thing. The tour of America was a very unhappy tour. The rest of it was pretty exciting. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not doing an oh, woe is me um, about it. It was a, almost all a positive experience. But I... Um, doing festivals in foreign countries is great. 
because you're with fellow travelers and other comics and there's a lovely culture afterwards and and you do your shows and you go to a bar and you have a drink and you play a game of football on a Friday in a park and and it's there's lots to enjoy about that touring America by yourself for four months with a promoter you don't like is hard because that's four months of not seeing a friend Mm. that's four months of not having a loved one of that's that's a long time to be away from home and no matter what the hell you're doing what you do for a living nobody wants to be away from home alone for four months and i was in each town for a week so it's not like you form any relationships especially because i was on stage six nights of the week and traveling on the seventh mm. so i didn't i didn't have any great social interaction for four months that's really weirdly damaging to the soul um and it just sort of knocked the stuffing out of me. And by the end of that, it's, not, it's partly that. I, if, I, if, I'd, if there'd still been an appetite, I probably would have just come back and, and done more of the show in the UK. But I'd like toured the UK three times. So an audience has got every right by that point to be going, when's the next new thing, Dave? We, you did that in Harrogate a year ago. Come There's a, a couple of times you referred to the, like the sort of personifying the audience as going, come on, what's the next thing? And I just want to, I'm, yeah, no. I'm really tight on time because we've been enjoying this a lot. We've only got a few minutes left. But I just want to to briefly get into what you think they need from you. Is there a sense for you whereby you have to continually deliver? Or is that is that purely a, a sort of a business idea? Or is there a sense for you as a person that you have to be delivering in order to feel good? Uh, no, because I, I, I stopped delivering for a very long time and I felt really good. Um, and after Google, I didn't do any live stuff for, for ages, years, years and years and years. And the time you saw me at that gig with Tiernan was when I basically got bored of doing nothing. I did. A, I, I, I wrote. I, I remember a, you saying that at the time. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote a couple of books. I did other things. So I was still, you know, I still had a creative outlet. It just wasn't live. I just had no interest in being on a stage, holding a microphone, talking to an audience. It just didn't, that, that had gone. I'd sort of killed the joy of that. And the worst thing in the world is to be doing it when you don't want to be doing it. The best thing in the world is to be doing it when you want to do it. It's the most joyful expression. It's the most lovely thing to do. I love performing now, but I'd fallen out of love with it. And if you've fallen out of love with it, the sensible thing is to fucking stop. The worst thing in the world is to keep on plowing on because you feel like you've got to, giving joyless subpar performances because you're not really engaged in it. And here we go. Hello again. It's horrible. It's a really soul-destroying thing to do. And I recognized that in myself, and so I stopped. And then a few years later, four or five years later, maybe not, I don't know how long it was, three, four, five years, I just started cycling around London, going to gigs and going, can I do five? And, and doing bits. And, and uh, I'm not uh, embarrassed by the fact that lift routine was one of my old routines from my mm. old stand-up that you were saying you'd seen. And I was doing bits of old stuff and bits of new stuff as it occurred to me. And I just started doing it for a hobby again, sort of in the way I had when I was 19, when it was fun. And I just did it as a hobby for a little while again. And it was lovely. And it sort of reignited the passion. Okay. So, so in terms of the writing then, and we might need to use this to bring it to a close. I, I, no one's waved at me yet, but I suspect someone might be ready to. Yes. Um, in terms of the writing between when you then went on to do sit down, pedal, pedal, stand up, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a, a purely stand up show. Do well, you... it's actually a hybrid. It, the, the last 40 minutes of it okay. are PowerPoint. And it was in the last 40 minutes of that show that I discovered 
the current incarnation. Okay, okay. Um, oh, structurally, very sound, Dave. Yeah. T- typical you. <laughs> yeah. um, I can't help myself, Stuart. It's always, <laughs> it's always bookended. It's always... <laughs> let, me, let me just put this to you, then. Is it, <laughs> is it the case that when you are performing without any PowerPoint, when you're cycling around and doing five yeah. and the rest of it, and it's just you, yeah. does that change the way that you write? And does, do you necessarily end up with a different kind of punchline, perhaps not necessarily a stronger punchline, but when you can't go, when you can't press a little clicky device yeah. and have a joke happen that you've set up in advance, does that change the way you think about writing? Um, it does. And I don't think necessarily for the better. I think not necessarily for worse. I just think I'm better at one than the other. And I think you should try and give your best. And so I do the thing I think I'm best at. And until I discover something else I think I'm better at or get bored of it or whatever, then that's what I do. Okay. But there is the thing that PowerPoint gives is an ability to explain more while adding the funny. Yes. Whereas the the example I normally give is if you're a stand-up in a club with a mic and you want to talk about an advert or a technique used by advertising, you're sort of reduced to only talking about the ones that are on TV at the moment that the audience are familiar with already. Absolutely, yes. So you end up talking about the Go Compare adverts, and then you're talking about a thing that the audience has already been funny about for itself. Yes. And there's no fucking point. Over-familiarity with it. Yeah, and there's, there's no point. But that's the reference that they will understand. Okay. But with PowerPoint, I can say... Have you seen? This is interesting because in this advert they do this and in this advert they do this and in this advert, which is from Belgium, they do the same fucking thing. Isn't that weird? And talk about stuff that I couldn't, you couldn't possibly convey that as truth to an audience without proving it. If you try to get into those kind of intricate details about something like that, an audience will be thinking, do they? Or are you exaggerating for comic effect? And the minute they think that, it's not as funny. And there's a moment when you're proving these sort of things where people, you see them at you, sort of slack-jawed wonder at the, oh, my God, I have seen all those things and never joined those dots. That's a me- Wow. And you couldn't explain yes. it without that okay. part of the double act. Okay. So that's the big advantage for me, being able to, to explore ideas that are not already in your heads as an audience. So that, that's the hugest. That's, that's why I love it so much. We're going to have to do a sequel to this at some point because I'm afraid we have to leave it there, but I've only asked 10% of the questions okay. I was planning to. So um, uh, before, we, before we go, just to round things up, yeah. um, as a question I like to ask people, I'm going to put a time limit on it for once just because of the, the nature of the circumstances. In 30 seconds... In, no, not at all. It's all great stuff. No, I just I do. so I'm much terrible. of it. I'm terrible. In 30 seconds, can you review yourself? If you, were to give a, if you were to be a critic watching a show, knowing you as you do... How would you review yourself um, in terms of your, your strengths, your weaknesses? Uh, oh, I, I can't. I, 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 my strength is structure. It's how one thing impacts on the other. That, and it, it, it is that. I can only, I can't do it in 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> Let's go and do it in the dressing room. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to because I can't do it in 30 seconds because I I was going to give an example of how a change of structure. I think from this we can glean that your weakness is brevity is impossible. Uh, 
absolutely, which is a shame because that is the soul of wit. And... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are getting kicked out. I'm terribly sorry. Would you please thank me in joining Mr. Dave Gorman? Thank you. Yes, please thank me in joining. That's how we like to do it at ComCom Pod. Uh, Talk about baby brain. It's not so much that I said that, that little spoonerism, but uh, that I genuinely didn't know I had said that until several people pointed it out. Here is a tiny little extra nugget of Dave, just a minute and ten seconds or something, that we recorded in the uh, in the dressing room right afterwards. So I'm just tacking this little bit on the end. I think it's an interesting point. Here's Dave. It's what I didn't have time for. Well, this is another thing I didn't have time for. There's two or three things I didn't have time for. <laughs> One of the things you get from the structure of a longer show and a storytelling show that you don't get from 20 minutes of stand-up is on a 20-minute stand-up set, an audience is thinking... What's the funniest thing you've got? I think I made Right, we like that. Now, what's the next funniest thing you've got? And it's just they wipe the slate clean every single time and they demand funny now. Whereas with a storytelling show, you're playing with other emotions. It's not just the trigger. I understand. So you can make people emotionally engage. You can make okay. people go... <gasps> and the minute they're doing that, they're off balance and they're really easy to make laugh. Yes. Okay. Because they're not expecting it. You can watch a really shit-hot stand-up, but if they use the same rhythm for 40 minutes, you are become immune to their joke. You get used to their whatever it is. If it's da 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 If you have that for 40 minutes, you get used to it and you start knowing where the laugh is coming. And the minute you make people involve their heart and their emotion as well as their brain... They stop expecting it every 20 seconds and then it's easy to give it them every 20 seconds because then they're, they're off balance. Great. It's about that. It's about putting them off balance and having lower, different expectations. So they're, they think, oh, my God, what happens next? When the minute they're thinking that, you can give them a little nudge to the left, to the right, back, yeah, front. It's like a magician. Yeah. It's like uh, misdirection. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's easy to keep them off balance that way. And that was Dave Gorman. So thank you very much to him. I really hope we can... Um... I hope we can pick up where we left off and, and continue that conversation. There is so, so much more to talk about um, with him. And I hope that you seek out all of his projects online. I sort of imagine that anyone switched on enough to be listening to this show online is already very familiar with Dave's work. But there is a chance that some of you listening in far-flung places have uh, have not happened upon him before. So please do check out some of his wonderful stuff uh, online. Uh, and live if you can after he uh, takes a, a big break to hang around being a dad. More on that perhaps in a bit, who knows. Um, but that, no pod blins for this one. Did all the logging myself. Uh, but thanks, of course, to Nathan for his tireless efforts in editing and uploading the show. And thanks to everyone who came along the 4th of April. Ramesh Ranganathan for the last live one in this series. And I'm very pleased to announce that I have made a booking for the Secret Welsh Festival about which we do not talk. If you are going to be there... Uh, then you can come along at 6.30 on the Sunday and see me interview Joe Lysett, ladies and gentlemen, long-term friend of the show, buddy of mine, very, very funny man indeed. Uh, so get your homework done, watch him on Live at the Apollo online and uh, and get your tickets for the, the Secret Welsh Festival about which we do not talk because uh, last year that sold out pretty quick. Um, so jump on that now and um, and we'll get cracking. Thanks for listening. Next week... Who have I got in the can? Will it be Wilmot? Will it be Mace? Will it be Abigail? Who knows? I haven't worked it out yet. It'll be one of them. Speak to you soon. And that concludes the podcast. Oh, okay. 
I'm feeling pretty... This is the ramble. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good. I, there's a couple of things, uh, specific things. I'm not going to talk babies today because I don't want to over-baby you. Also, I'm away for 48 hours. I'm in London at the moment, then I'm going up to Nottingham for the next tour show. Um, so do jump on that. Das Kino, if you fancy it. All details at comedianscomedian.com, blah, blah, blah. We're not promoting now. We're waffling. So... Couple of things. The uh, Birmingham gig was so much fun. Thank you. Um, and beforehand, uh, here's the order in which I'll talk to you about these things. I've got three quick things. One is the system I used to calm myself down before doing the Birmingham gig because I was pinging off the walls. It's a really neat trick I got off some random Tumblr post that, Tumblr post that I saw on uh, Imga. Um, so the two things I wanted to talk to you about, other than that, are. Um, I'm going to go and do an interview on Absolute Radio. And I'm, when I say gonna, I mean in 10 minutes. I'm going to go and uh, do an interview on Jeff Lloyd and Annabelle. And I'm sorry, Annabelle, I don't know your surname. But you can find it. They've got a podcast of the, of the Absolute Radio show that they do, which is brilliant. So this is great for me. I'm there to talk about the tour. I'm there to advertise it. This is a proper PR opportunity. And what I've been doing, I've been doing lots of PR for the tour. The vast majority of it has taken the form of chats about stuff, you know, where you ring someone either live, non-live, or they you they just record you and you, uh, you know, even if it's not performative, they just, they're making notes. And obviously those things can follow a similar sort of bent. So they go, how are you doing? What are you up to at the moment? Tell us about the new baby. Tell us about the podcast. And I always come away from those situations thinking that went well or that went badly. Um, or let's say less well. Um, I come away, they're sort of fun to do. I quite like it. They're a bit like this, only, uh, only you get interrupted all the time. And sometimes you get asked damn fool questions. But it, it's, it's good because the, you have a one-to-one relationship with some people, with a person. And, um, and they can be really fun. And often, I suppose, I, I finish those interview situations feeling like, oh, I really should come up with a few specific anecdotes about the podcast. So when I say, oh, I get all this in debt, you're the podcast guys, per- person from the Crawley advertiser or whoever. Um, that was a good one, Crawley. Uh, I, so I would say to them, yeah, I, so I find out all the secrets of the stars, the star comedians, you know, I'm pitching, trying to get in their paper. And, um, and then they will say something like, uh, oh great! Tell us some of the secrets, and then my mind completely goes blank, and I go, "Well, it's not. It's sort of. It's a sort of long form thing, really. It's not really soundbitey. Mm, I suppose you know Sarah Millican's got a law that she does. And I get yeah from an episode four years ago. So I always feel that I need to prep more for them. So hold that idea in your head. I am getting there. I promise. The other thing is that I. No, we we know enough about me as a comic to know that I'm trying to get away from the prep. <laughs> Not just because I've got less time, but because I think I'm funnier when I'm free-falling, right? You know, it's that thing, get the obstacles out from in front of your way, get, get a clear route between you and the person you're talking to, and be naturally funny. You can always tell the difference. You can hear it on interviews I do with comedians on this show. You can hear when something is teed up. You can hear when they go, now it's time for my great joke about this. And I can hear you, in my head at least, I can hear you guys all sighing and going, oh, well, that's just a joke that you said on another show. So, of course, it's better to get an immediate one-to-one sort of thing. The downside of that is occasionally someone asks you a question, stumps you, you've got nothing to say. And in these PR situations, you've got to turn up and go, I'm the funny man. I'm not just going to talk to you about comedy. I'm going to prove that I'm hilarious, which is why all of your listeners are hopefully going to be buying tickets for my my Soho show at Soho Theatre at the end of April. Um... So 
there's a new tack. What happened with this absolute thing is two days ago, out of the blue, they sent me an email saying, oh, you're going to be doing the time capsule episode. You've got to pick three stories from the week's news, two that you want to save and one that you want to forget. And to put in the time capsule, well, some sort of format thing sounds fun. And I saw that and I immediately went, oh, God, I've got to do prep. I've got to do homework. and uh, I'm going to try and write jokes about the news. That's not really my most natural suit is to go, oh, yeah, here's a news story. Um, you know, I'll riff on that. So so what I'm going to do, what I've decided to do as a sort of a tactical exercise, and I think this is reasonable. I don't think this is sort of stingy in any way, artistically stingy. Um, I haven't prepared anything. I've picked a couple of stories, I've skimmed them, and I'm just going to go in and have a conversation. And the fun thing about this as an exercise is that you will be able to download the podcast of that episode and see how I did, <laughs> which uh, I'll try and say hello to you secretly, um, see if that gets through. Um, but uh, oh, what will I try and mention? I should try and mention a specific thing, shouldn't I? So that uh, so that you know it's uh, it's me. Um, I will. I'll, I'll use the word horse. There we go. There's my horse, guys. Thanks for thanks for the hashtags. <laughs> um, I will try and get some horses into it and we will see if they make the edit or if they suss me and, and nibble them out. Um, so, so there we go. That's just a thing I wanted to say. I, ordinarily, I would over prepare and then I'd go on the show and be over prepared and, and almost need to like, be trying to remember jokes rather than having a naturally funny conversation. So this is all just about Goldsmith trying to buck up, believe in himself and uh, stop referring to himself in the third person. You know, let's see if that works. Last thing, last thing. Um, this is a tip I got. I might write jokes about this. That's me drinking some tea there. Ordinarily, Nathan would uh, remove that, but uh, I'm sure he'll take the right call and leave it in because this is, after all, the waffle. Um, there is a thing I saw on a website called Imgur, I-M-G-U-R dot com, which I, upon which I lurk all the time. I, I lose at least 45 minutes a day to Imgur. I love it. It's like Reddit with pictures. They upvote the funniest comment. You can all, you know, you, you go and discover it. It's fun. Um, makes me feel like a young American guy, <laughs> really. I go, oh yeah, I'm a young American guy who's into computer games and not a 38-year-old man from Levington Spa with no time left to play computer games. Not in life, I hope. But on it, I saw a, a link to a thing, like a, you know, a screen grab of a Tumblr post. This is an absolute rabbit hole if you're unfamiliar with these terms. Don't worry. The point is this. I was backstage before the Birmingham gig last Friday. And I was so excited. I had maybe 70 people in. It w and it was a small room, so it felt nice and packed. And I looked out and I recognised one or two people, but not so many people that I felt like, oh, it's just people I recognise. Um, and my brother was there as well, which is brilliant. He's really important to me. Him and his mate Bill came along and uh, and supported the show. So I felt really like, oh, I'm in, I'm in the pocket, as Rob Rouse would say. I was in the pocket. And, um, and beforehand, I felt myself get a bit nervous. And I thought, what can I do as a pre-gig ritual to calm myself down? And I did two things. One that's new, that's from the Tumblr thing, and one that is an old one I did in 2010. Every time I did my show, The Reasonable Man, which was my, my first show, very well reviewed, criminally overlooked for any awards, um, but really good fun. I did, before that show, a little backstage ritual. I'm just going to tell you what it is now, because this is the purpose of this bit. Um... There is a, a Japanese juggler called Senmaru, and Senmaru does wonderful, uh, kind of beautiful 
ancient Japanese juggling tricks. So he has a mouth stick, balances a teapot on it, flicks it, rolls it round, and just breathtakingly beautiful high-skill juggling. Has a metal ring that spins round on a, on a parasol, and he, so he manipulates the parasol such that the ring keeps rolling round the top of it. It just looks wonderful. But what makes his act superb is that he has an incredible sense of humour, broken English and perfect jokes. So during the act, he will stop and say, this next trick, very difficult, very hard almost impossible and he'd look at the audience and then he'd say but i am senmaru 39 single if i try i can do and the place would erupt but it's the third time he said that as he then does something increasingly impossible the place was just erupting in this wonderful joyous laughter and i said the place i've seen him several times all over the world it's such a wonderful wonderful act and I nicked that bit of it to say to myself privately before I went on stage. I would say to myself back in 2010, those halcyon days, I'd be backstage in the, uh, wherever it was, the Dome, I've seen the show, the Pleasance Dome, in the Joker venue, sadly uh, no, no longer with us in that form. And I'd be backstage and I would say to myself, very hard to write an hour of stand-up comedy, to write original jokes for one whole hour, which it bloody was in those days. I mean, it's still hard, but back then it's, it's such a marathon achievement. When you start off doing five minutes... And you think, I'll never do an hour. And then you do. So I'd say to myself, very hard, almost impossible. But I am Senmaru. So on and so on. And, and it would always just get me in a real kick-ass mood. So I did that. And I thought, I like this. But it's not enough. I need something else. In the, this, the, now in the Birmingham gig last Friday. And so what I did was, um, I remember this time. We're getting round to it. This is the last point and then I'll bugger off. What you do is this, and I remember, I'm paraphrasing because I remember it, I don't even know the original source material, but this is a thing you might enjoy. You close your eyes and you imagine yourself, it's a motivational tip, <laughs> I will tell you, I promise, this is it, it's, it's an inspirational slash motivational tip, but I just love it, it's so me. You close your eyes and you imagine yourself 80 years old. And this is a real kick in the teeth for 80-year-olds. Sorry if there's any 80-year-olds listening. But you imagine yourself sufficiently old that you are incapacitated at the end of your life, towards the end of your life. And you imagine yourself in as much detail as you can. And you really fill it in, sort of visualise who's there, you're, you know, whether there's anyone there, whether you're alone, whatever. And you think to yourself, oh, I wish I was age X, your, your current real-life age. So for me, I wish I was 38 again. I wish I could be back there at that moment just before I was about to go on stage at Birmingham Glee for the first night of my debut tour. And you hold that in your mind and you go, I'd give anything. I just wish I could open my eyes and be back there. And then you open your eyes and you are back there. <laughs> it's nuts. I mean, it's obvious and stupid and I feel ridiculous telling it to you. But oh, my God, I got such a surge of adrenaline. And if you really take the time to visualise that, it's an incredibly good way of getting yourself metaphorically and actually out of bed. That'll do for now. Speak to you very soon. Horse! Horse!